0: I developed anxiety, I was cutting them off, I was was solving my daughter's problems for her. When she was little, she was this incredible problem solver, and I watched my daughter turn from a strong problem solver to somebody who would respond to me with questions like, with comments like, she expected me to fix her problems.
1: Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Convos. I'm your host, Diego, together with my co-host, Shanlu. Shanlu, how is it going?
2: Well, there's, there's a lot of things going on. The world, the world Cup is going on. Twitter is getting more interesting by the day. And I watched a documentary on Netflix, a children's series, actually. And the first episode was on social media, which was Social Media Explained to Children. And I watched it with my daughter and it was really interesting how they explain how to deal with social media to children. So
1: what's I, the documentary I mean, called?
2: No, it's not a documentary. Or, it's, it's a children's program, brain, brain child or something.
1: I'd say yeah. perfect timing given the topic. And yeah, definitely. I, <laughs> I
2: was thinking of the topic for today and was like, Hey, that's social media and mental health. Oh, Why? Well, crypto and mental health, that's that's an old better ballgame, I think. So I think that kind of already kind of leads into today's guest, right?
1: Yeah, definitely. So why don't you go ahead and introduce the our guest for today?
2: Okay. So today's guest is a special educator. Maria just actually published a book and wrote a book and published mm-hmm. the book herself through self-publishing. And the topic is called mental health solutions, understand how our culture is making us sick. And hey, there's a lot that we can say about our culture and making us sick and mental health. So these are three topics that we're definitely going to talk about today. So without further ado, let's introduce Maria. Welcome to Social Conference.
0: Hi, so Luke, Hi, Diego. How are you? Glad oh, to be here.
2: Well, we're, we're doing quite good. Actually, we're not in the World Cup as a country. so. We're kind of rooting for whoever feels should win. And so basically today, everybody who we expected to win went through, I think, except for maybe Senegal and Ecuador, like we expected England to go through to the next round. We expected the U.S. to go through to the next round. We expected the Netherlands to go through to the next round. And like South Americans, we felt like Ecuador had a chance, but. We have to give it to the the champions of Africa, Senegal, who went into the the next the next round, and that's kind of my for social enthusiasm <laughs> for the non sports fans and the non sports watchers that kind of uh, have to follow and listen to me talk about the World Cup now.
1: Before we go on the the children's topic, I'm actually curious from Marias. and do you follow the World Cup at all?
0: I do not. I do not. So I mean, I. I I wish that I did. I wish I had more of an interest. I'm not a huge sports fan. I think that here a lot of people are sports fans. I just am not. I'm going to jump into that. No,
2: no, no. This is because we're gonna talk about culture and mental health. Yeah. And and one of the things that I experienced during my study is like one of the things they always say about sports is it bridges culture, right? But what I wanna know from especially the American perspective, like Is sports, in what sense, especially passive sports, so watching any kind of sport, how does that benefit actually your mental health?
0: Well, I think that, I mean, sports do bring people together. There's a lot of people bond over sports and, you know, I mean, I attend sports because I get invited to them. I enjoy them. I support my friends, you know, but I guess for me, um. I have so many interests. So I personally, it's just watching passively watching sports is not something that excites me. I think I'm a little too high strung. To, I'm not passive, but I know almost everybody I know loves sports, and they all they all tend to bond and, and plan parties and such around it. So what but, but
2: what so you just say like passively watching sports? That's not my thing. What what can people wake you up for? What's something that you're like, hey, if we're gonna do this, I'm I'm game, no matter the time of the day.
0: For me, I like to hike, bike, kayak, canoe. I'm a, I'm a big outdoors person. I used to be a skier, but I'm getting too old for that. I don't particularly care cold or how I feel afterwards. But but I would say the more intense the hike, the better.
1: Now that picture on the link website you sent us makes total sense. Uh, <laughs> like in, in a, a hiking outfit. Just to close close that part of like, what's the longest or toughest hike you did, and like, what was that experience like from start and the, the end end goal that relieved? Because oh. I did a, my longest hike was like twenty kilometers. I, I did that in New Zealand over mountains, and you just see four different types of terrain throughout the day. So it took like seven eight hours. So, but Good for you, yeah, I was depleted at the end.
0: I would say I probably t- hiked about 11 miles, uh, about 11,000 feet. Not that I, I mean, I don't, because in Pennsylvania is not a, there's not a lot of elevation in mountains. Well, there's mountains, I suppose, but most of my hiking happens in Colorado. I have, my brother lives there and I, I fly across the country to see him once a year. And we do. that's when my intense hiking happens, but there's a lot of beautiful places here, just not too intense, but I could go out for the day. I could go in the morning and come back at night easily
2: so now i want to know because you mentioned so what at what time do you feel like you're becoming you have to hang up your skiing boots because i snowboard right Or right, i used to snowboard let's let's put it <laughs> let's phrase it really carefully so at what age do you feel like okay at this point it's it's time to to leave the skiing to younger people
0: Well, I actually, I skied up until I was about 30 and when I became a mom, I think I had less time for that and I would take my kids out, but I found it to be a lot hard, you know, to do that when they were too little and as time went on and they could do more, it was not as fun for me, you know, so I, I mean, don't get me wrong. My brother's 50 and he still skis all the time and he skis, at, you know, at Winter Park and and on black diamonds and he he's a big skier but for me i i i quit when i was younger but i also i think it was just really a timing thing with that i think as you, as i've gotten older i've gotten a little softer i suppose
1: that makes sense it's like a natural progression as uh, you yeah grow older and i think that's normal for i think culture as well coming back to the topic of, you know, the book and mental health. But the first thing I want to touch on with the book is, you know, you're Maria. But when I saw the title on the book, it had another name and I saw the initials MW and that kind of internalized it. Oh, maybe it's just her initials. So could you elaborate it? So, cause you told us you read, you've written it on a pen with a pen name. So for people who don't know that's when people, authors use a different name or an author's name. Could you uh, tell us why you opted to do that? And like, what was your approach to writing that book under that name?
0: Truthfully, I never needed, I'm not a writer and I never intended to write a book. I have journaled for 30 years. I started years ago when I was teaching and counseling troubled teenagers. You know, I would self-reflect, did that that technique work? Did it, you know, how any professional would at the end of the day? And when I became a mom, I slowly developed anxiety and that anxiety interfered with my parenting and I journaled then as really a coping mechanism. And so I journaled for 30 years. Truthfully, the book is, it's kind of pre-pandemic, pre Pre-technology, if you want to know the truth, Um, I saw the mental health crisis kind of coming a quarter of a century ago. And when I would reach out to people, not that many people were, they could relate to me, but they didn't know much about it. And so I just decided, you know, I, I wanted to share my journey. The book is really about the surge in cases of anxiety and depression when my generation came of age, generation X. We were the generation who everybody was encouraged to go to college, seek a career, do it all. And that's a good thing. But we blazed the trail. We didn't know how how hard it was going to be to do everything. And what it did was, was we, um, it changed the landscape of our, co- of our communities because now everybody was working and with dual income families, there's more money in the house and there's more indulging than we had growing up. And there's. Faster pace and less sleep and and our autonomic nervous systems weren't turning off and it's kind of a slow progression and when mom gets mentally ill or develops an anxiety, parenting with anxiety is not parenting with intention, and we can interfere with the emotional growth of our children but I not the book is not criticizing anybody's parenting or how they handled that transition. it really is about it's just an unemotional Non judgmental observations because that's how I am. I'm a deep thinker. I, I think like that. I, I think deeply about what's happening around me. And in any case, I kind of got sidetracked there. But I that, it was a journal that I decided to share because over the years, when I would talk to people, whether they were neighbors or friends or family or whomever, they were always very encouraging because I am a deep thinker and, and self reflect. People would say things like, you should write a book or you should. Run for office or you should teach at the university. And, and so I, I decided that I would, it was a good idea to share what I had learned. And I just kind of decided that, but I worked full time. I have kids. I, you know, trying to, under, trying to navigate even technology and social media is a full time job when you're my age. So trying to then write a book, I did a lot on my own. I decided to just self publish to put it out there. And when I joined the group, I had listened to a lecture that kind of scared me a little bit about, I guess, being a professional in the field and putting my name out there. And and I, I thought that I, I think I, I know that I had, was very respectful. I got permissions to put people in the book or I only sh- shared common scenarios, but I was very fearful, I guess, because of my role as a professional writing a book like that. So I went with the pen name, but then I learned after I, after I published that it kind of under, undermined my credibility and I probably should have should not have done it that way. So.
1: I you mentioned you saw the science coming, especially on the the, the mental health challenges that a, a lot of mm-hmm. uh, us face now. Like could you tell us like what what were your observations? Like what did you specifically see like okay this is gonna be like 10, 20 years from now in this next generation is gonna struggle with this. Like what what were the telltale signs for you?
0: Well, I can tell you as a special education teacher, well, with my training, I would say I understand human behavior, I understand the leading perspectives in psychology, and I understand what a mentally healthy environment looks like from best practice perspective. And here I was, I became a mom and things started slowly, I I I everything I I was noticing happening around me was counterintuitive to what we know is healthy. And it, it really started with just the pace that we were keeping. And I just, I never, you know, you, you develop, when you don't take care of yourself, I just, things would race in my head. And I thought, how can I teach my children to listen if I don't have time? I'm, you know, I developed anxiety. I was cutting them off. I was, I was solving my daughter's problems for her. When she was little, she was this incredible problem solver. And I watched my daughter turn from a strong problem solver to somebody who would respond to me with questions like with comments, like she expected me to fix her problems because I had started doing that for her because I was always in a hurry or I was just anxious myself. And I didn't, you know, when you go to bed anxious because you didn't take any time to unwind at the end of the day, you kind of wake up just as jazzed up as you went to bed you know we were I was keeping a pace that really just wasn't healthy I wasn't taking care of myself and my at the same token my husband traveled so I was like a single mom a lot of times so I was doing it all and that's why it was I never got breaks and I should also mention my oldest daughter had night terrors and so she would go I would go days without sleep so if you've ever gone without sleep you know what you turn into and so I was just snapping, snapping, snapping. And but when I when I say our culture, I guess I meant that whether it was at school or the pace or the activities that people put their kids in at such a young age or just just um even the indulgences. I grew up, I mean I I definitely didn't want for anything, but we had no excesses. And I think I had the perfect childhood. You know, we had everything we needed and my parents were present and we lived in the moment. And we didn't, there wasn't, your mind wasn't constantly racing. Like what I think a lot of people do today. I mean, I have to believe you guys have, can relate to that. You're, oh, you're the generation you're, of my kid's age. You're putting the
2: mirror way too close into my face at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and to, to touch upon like, like to relate it to my current situation is my wife is now for work, she's away for a couple of days. And so I'm taking care of all the parenting duties for for the for, for this large part of this week, which includes stuff that usually is reserved for my wife. And then I see her kind of in, not in a kind of a panic mode, but kind of like a stressed mode. I said, mm-hmm. I still have to do this tonight. I still have to do that tonight. I still have to do that. And then when something doesn't go according to plan and the children are like, becoming dependent towards her because they want quality time from her as well. It's really difficult to provide that quality time without getting into a very stressful situation. So I pretty much relate to what you're saying a lot. And I mean, I think, I think the biggest problem is that it's, it's like on one side, our generation is reading into the Tim Ferriss books and is understanding how to, in, in shorter amounts of time, get the same stuff done and declutter your mind, but on the other side, it's like, oh, wait, I have four hours extra available, let's slot this in. Or even worse, (laughs) and I think that's my biggest struggle and that's definitely something I want to talk about, even worse is that people ask you for your time and if you're kind of Mm -hmm. like a, a social person or somebody who loves to help others, if I'm not careful, 60 hours a week of my week will just go to helping out other people. And there's also something that if you're helpful to other people, they will ask for more help. So what, what your personal observation on, on how this is changing society and maybe even some tips on how you can either, either recognize. That you're getting into a very stressful, mental, mentally stressful situation, or tips how you can avoid getting into situations where, where you kind of like burn off. Constantly.
0: Well, the one thing that I would say that you said that kind of really resonated with me, you were talking about you had to, it can be stressful to make time for quality. And I think that that kind of happened to me as well. Like I was this easygoing, laid back person. And when you become a parent and you're working, you really have to control everything to make it work. And then you're controlling the people in your life. And when you find them resisting you, that's when you realize I have to step back because we can't, we should, I mean, you have to guide your children, yes. But I think I that was my red flag it was always when my kids would kind of, be oppositional and, and because I, I knew I was trying to control too much and, and I even became that way of my husband and I was never controlling but it's really hard on your relationship too but as far as you know, making sure that or providing some boundaries truthfully I mean I I set time aside personally where I the answer is no if it's not a hell yeah it's a no you have to have time for yourself yeah, and people understand that. And and I'll tell you one thing. I mean, I love technology in that. I think it's brought a lot to our life, but when cell phones became a thing and there's, everything's beeping and interrupting your thoughts, I'm a very focused person. I became so flustered by all that. I, I never, I turn, I turn it away. At, I have boundaries on the time when I will work and you should not take your work calls at a certain time. Don't look at your Facebook or your emails or whatever at the times that when you're with your family and 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 I think people do understand if you say look you know I I'll get to when I can get to it I'll get to it but sometimes you just can't you want to help more than you can and I I I think I'm like you I I feel pulled in a lot of direction and I want to be helpful but it's not always it's not always that easy and you do have to put the boundaries up and, and people understand they do but if you're can't, if you not healthy, your kids aren't going to be healthy and you're not going to be good for people anyway.
2: So I find it really interesting. And, and I think this is the hardest thing to do. It's like there's, there's a very popular video by Simon Sinek, which is about this issue, especially with cell phones. And basically it says like when people are like in a meeting and one of the phones goes off, and they look at it and they go like, I'm not going to answer that. It's kind of like, oh, wow, amazing. You shouldn't even have your phone on on, on the table at that point. You should, you know, and that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Like people are so much on their phone and often not aware of it, like how much they are behind the devices. And for me, what has helped is between six and eight is quality time. So six and eight in the morning, good. six at eight in the evening is quality time. And the phone is away because I remember. I think three years ago, that I would just come home from work and I would just fall in a car with my phone. And I would be home, but I would be absent. If yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. Yes. And now I'm actually struggling with after eight, saying like, Wow, well, just close down the laptop and just stop working. Or just right. Stop being. And it's kind of this this mental thing because on one side, you you don't want to miss out. On the other side, you know that it's not going to be useful like it's and, and I also feel so Diego you should definitely tell us your perspective because I remember in the, in my 20s it being different in my 20s especially before I had children I was able to say like I'm gonna work from 10 p.m till 2 in the morning and I'm gonna be productive and then from 10 to midnight I actually was and then from midnight to 2 it didn't make any sense and now if I decide at 10 p.m. I want to start working, I'm not even able to be productive anymore. Right. So basically, it's better to say, you know what? Just go to bed at 10 p.m. Maybe read a book or do something that's off screen. But I'm actually not able to pull through anymore after 10 p.m. Every, every in the, in the last, I think the last 20 occasions that I was like, I'm going to do something productive, it ended up not being productive.
0: Well, I think the most interesting thing to me is that my generation, we used to, it, things were over, like businesses weren't open in the evenings. It wasn't 24-7. People took time together. People went out and you hung out with your neighbors. There was a, there was a stronger community, a sense of community. It was normal. Things changed with, technolo- with women entering the work world and with technology. But the one thing that I love about your generation, the younger generation, you know, I wrote this book because I was struggling and there was nothing out there for me. But in a in that was, you know, in a very short time, I think, I mean, there's so much more out there, you know, between podcasts and self-publishing and social media. There's a lot of information out there and your generation, you don't. You don't. You're not okay with the status quo. You're already figuring it out. Like the problem, in a very short time, arose, arose, and then you you're starting to solve it. Just like you're saying, you no, know, I, I turned my phone off. You know, when it first started happening, I was just so overwhelmed by it. You know, this was not the way I was used to living, and I would just put it aside. But but I think that there's a lot of lot out there and a lot of stuff, really great stuff being done. You know, ideas, suggestions, support. I think we are going to get away from it. I don't think that this is. I don't think what I have to say is. I don't think it's it's an epiphany or anything. It was when I was experiencing it that I do think that. And the reason I wanted to publish it, the book, was because I wanted people to un, understand that if I could help create a scenario where they could, un, people could understand where any person, regardless of what their complex needs were, whether they had severe mental illness or or just Behavioral stuff or or delinquency stuff, they could thrive if I could describe what that looks like and apply it to how we're living, and we just understand what's necessary to live healthier. Then perhaps people will start doing making small changes within themselves. I, I also in the book I talk about, and and I think maybe I cover too many topics because environment covers everything. It's the environmental impact, but I do think that the that if it's about understanding one another too, making more efforts to understand each other and how our choices affect one another. And and I think maybe reevaluating our values and looking at how, you know, what we can do individually and, and what we can do for one another. So
1: yeah, to chime in on that, yeah, you, you touched on the important point. Like there's so much information now, but to quickly reply to Jean-Luc, so I, I don't have kids at the moment yet. So so I, I haven't gone through that process or, you know, of you know, that added so-called pressure, time management, et cetera. But on the other hand, if I if I reflect on the part on, you know, the work 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 culture that we briefly touched on just before, like, you know, perform, perform, perform. Jean-Luc mentioned the comparison a moment ago. Like that was one of the first books I personally read that kind of opened my mind to possibilities that were possible within using technology, reframing your mind on how to approach problems. And funny thing is, I remember that quote you said, you know, when, when you say, when you start helping people, it, it might get overwhelming. And if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. That I remember that exact quote from that book as well.
0: Oh, Yeah. what was the name of the book?
1: The 4-Hour work week by Tim Ferriss. So he uses that as an example on how to prioritize. So you mentioning that and Jean-Luc mentioning him as another kind of link those two together in a kind of serendipitous way. But that's how I kind of shifted my approach to yeah, productivity and taking time off for myself. So I don't try to be... 100% productive all the time. I actually take the more laid back approach as in, you know, at, and it might be detrimental at times because you, you don't have that, those focus points, those focus, there's lots of time to do actual productive work. But I listen more to my body as well. Like, you know, if it, if it doesn't work, don't force it in that sense. So that's kind of how I approached it. But to touch on the point on, you know, this generation having access to so much information, access to accesses, as you mentioned, we have an abundance of, you know, material information, connections now through social media that easily gets overwhelming. How have you seen, if I had to break it down in phases, as you see the culture and generations change. How are you seeing that shift now with the current generation on how they're handling these excesses? Do you see another challenge forthcoming in the next 10, 20 years, uh, another paradigm shift happening?
0: Well, the one you know, I think good comes from bad. And the one thing that I think that happened with the pandemic that was really good is that it slowed everybody down and it it had a lot of people realizing we don't need to work at this pace and look how great it is to have time with my family. And, and Uh I will tell you 10 years ago in my field, they were predicting that when the baby boomers retired, we were going to have, we were going to have a labor shortage in my field with the pandemic. You know, we lost a million people this year, you know, through the pandemic and a lot of people retired much sooner than they would have. And so I know at least in the United States, we're having a huge labor shortage. I don't know how it is there. Are you also facing that?
2: Oh, we're facing multiple things on that. We're, labor. Facing, we're facing a labor crisis, but we're also facing an economic crisis. We're also facing a brain right. drain because like if, if somebody here and, and it's a difficult example, but I think this plays in all developing countries in the sense that if somebody who had a college education even if it's a local college education that can make two thousand US a month. If they can make that in the US and they get a visa to work there or in, in, in Europe, you're gone. Like why wouldn't they be gone? It would be ten mm-hmm. times what they would earn if they would stay here. So from that perspective, that there's there's another and then you also have the geopolitical situation that plays a really important role role as well. So I think for us, that's the, the, the labor shortage isn't even the biggest issue at, at this point.
0: Well, I guess what I was getting at with the labor shortage, at least in this country, is I think that it's giving younger people. And like I said, what I love about younger people is they're not okay with the status quo and they're kind of shifting they're kind of, they have a little more control than, than people had before because there is a labor shortage. they're saying, we want to live, we want boundaries. We want four day work weeks. We want to live in, healthier. And I think businesses, if they want to remain, if they want to be, if they want to sustain their businesses and make money, they're going to, they're going to adapt. And I think it's good that people are coming together. When people started resigning after the pandemic, I thought, I thought, I wonder, I was wondering where we might see that. And you see some people have some regrets, but, but really, I I think that they're stepping back and they're trying to find what, what is meaningful for them? What is, what can they manage financially that, that allows them to maintain their mental health? And I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I think, I, 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 I think that we're heading in a very good direction. I know a lot of people, they're like, they worry because they, you know, change is hard. It just is, you know, and, and the, a lot of is, is changing right now. It's not just the pandemic. It's the war, the the effects of the war on the world. And, you know, it affects the economy. It affects, there's like this ripple effect. But I do think that good comes from evil. I mean, I mean, good comes from bad, I should say. I mean, and maybe that's just how I've always lived in the world is that I see the good in everything. But I, I do think that I think that the next generation is going to, I think that you're going to see a healthier work, work-life balance okay. and sooner than later. Okay, so here's, here's the interesting part
2: because I am going to i don't know the numbers, so I'm going to just give you a statement and then you can say whether or not uh, you feel you're experiencing the same thing. And then so also, I would love to have your weigh in on what the good things about that are. So one of the things that's happening, in, in, especially in the field of marketing, And this is happening here, but definitely also in in the U.S. So what ends up happening is, and there's an in-between phase. So there are a lot of people working at marketing department, and they're working underneath managers or CEOs even that don't understand how online marketing works and how the, the new forms of media work. And at a certain point, they get like, hey, I'm... I don't have to do this. Our generation is like, if you're my boss and you're going to beat me with a stick, I can go and work somewhere else. I don't Mm -hmm. need your money. I don't need your status. So I'll just leave. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening, especially in the field of marketing, is that people start out for themselves because they realize that they, first of all, they will earn more if they're independent versus if they get a salary because they kind of, first of all, get to get to pay themselves, so they get to decide how much money is being reinvested in the company and how much money is actually being used as, as part of a salary. And that leaves kind of a shortage as well within the company. So there's also a shortage in, often in marketing department, and which leads to more outsourcing as well. So it's kind of this cycle that mm-hmm. us, internally it can be done properly, even sometimes due to bad management not necessarily the marketing department not doing the job, but just their superiors not understanding the new fields and how it works to them starting out on their own and be, they basically becoming a consultant or an agency, a supplier to, to the, the company that they work for. This kind of also kind of coincides with shift from working. And this also happens in the financial field, actually. So not just marketing, but also in the financial field. And this kind of, it's kind of hit or miss. In some cases, they go off, they're successful. They never go back to, to a full-time job. They just keep on doing their own business. In some cases, it backfires because they underestimated all the things that the company the So the business side, when you work for a company, you don't have to do, worry about HR, you don't have to worry about <laughs> finance, you don't have to worry about taxes. You don't have to worry about a secondary secondary stuff like healthcare, those kind of things. And then they get hit and then they're like, oh, I have to go work and I have to go back to work for a bus. So how do you see this evolving? Do you see like a situation where more and more people as generations grow get like, okay, it's okay. It's good to have a middle field. The big companies will stay the big companies, but there will be a middle layer of a lot of independence who kind of work on a tech basis or do you feel like the traditional company structure
0: eventually will find a new farm and it will come back? I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're asking me. So you're saying that marketers, as from a marketing and another perspective, you don't have to put up with the old model and if, if, you're, if you're not treated right or or paid well enough, or whatever, so you can go off and and consult on your own. So people are doing that, and you're right. When you go out and work for yourself, there's a lot of complications that come with running your own business. It's a lot harder. So the the positive side of that really is that you're if you decide to go back to it working for somebody else, you're much more grateful for everything they put into it. And, and it's it's a lot easier, really. It, it does become a lot easier because there's a lot of people who tend to think they know more than they do because they've never done it. So there's there's value in leaving and trying to do it on your own. I'm, I'm not 100% sure what you're asking me as far as the, the the shift. I personally think that I think we need the big companies, the medium-sized companies, the small companies. There's value in all of it. But... So one of the that well, I think
2: to give you sorry to interrupt but to give you a better pers- perspective of what I'm trying to reach for. So this is all has to do with centralization, decentralization, basically. So there's like a new way of saying like, hey, the power in the world, especially the economic power, is too much centralized in one year. It's the whole one percent, ninety nine percent. I I don't want to go into too much into that, but I what I am interested in, and I think you can provide us with value as well on that topic is kind of like, so basically another great thinker once said that basically there will be all the medium-sized companies kind of end up disappearing. So either it's the big companies that have enough cash to really pay and sometimes overpay qualified employees, get them to stay that will continue growing bigger and bigger. And because they're so big, they will continue to push money into in salaries or just a lot of small niche specialized agencies, which are one, two people to 10 people that are really specialized and good in, at what they're in. And they basically are the suppliers to all those companies. Or is it like we will eventually go back to the structure, which is similar to the 80s, the 90s on how companies were on. Were hmm.
0: I think it's going to depend on how the next generation, I mean, like I said, I think that they're taking more control and saying, this is, how, this is what I want. And if they get, you know, if you want me to work for you, you know, and, and if they don't get what they want and they start their own company and this, this happens. I think that it's, I don't think that's a simple, it's not a simple answer. I think it could go in different directions. I personally think that we would be better off with a lot of small niche, you know, everybody doing their part and everybody kind of more of an an equal society, really. But do I think that's where we're heading? Possibly. But I, you know, I think that's going to depend on, there's a lot of kind of things that could play into that. So, I don't know if I'm the best okay. person no, to answer that I, I question.
2: To, it's kind of a lead in question. So, I asked my final question and I will go back to Diego's question. The reason I'm asking that is the mental health side of it. Because when you're like in a company with maybe 100, 200 people, there is an HR department, it's kind of structured. There's enough people within the company that will focus on certification and, and, and dealing with certain processes but also enough people that will fight and take care of the mental health of your fellow employees, whereas mm-hmm. with smaller companies, it really depends on the leader of the company, how much effort and time is being spent in mental health. So I was wondering like if, if we make that change and we get all these neat companies, how will that also impact our mental health? I kind of already, feel like you would say like hey we'll figure it out and they will figure it out but is it huh. maybe, does it make it easier or does it make it harder to take care of employees their their mental health
0: you know honestly i think that you know and it, i think i this is my opinion i think in if you're doing what you love and and you're in a smaller company with people you're you get along with you you know you're you're in an environment where you're happy and you're doing something that is important to you it kind of goes back to what I, what I was talking about, like a mentally healthy environment. When the environment is healthy, you don't really have the kind of, you know, you get the support that you need. Do you need, you don't need therapy and all of that. You really just kind of get, you have a healthy, light, healthier lifestyle. I mean, I suspect mental illness has been around a lot more than now we talk about it more, but it definitely not at the, not at the level that you see today. I mean, my generation, I mean, you just didn't see, I mean, I I think people were more resilient, I think, or or maybe because they had to, I I don't know. But like I said, it was just a different pace, a different everything. Everything was different. And so when we were, when you're in a mentally healthy environment, I don't think, I don't think, I think the other stuff just kind of comes. I don't think you need the supports. When I say supports, I mean like, like i said like those employee assistance programs and all of that you know ultimately in my field the goal really is to 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 create to create a space where regardless of what your ability is that we don't need to have people come in to do behavior support everybody kind of understands how to treat one another and how to manage somebody with autism or like they don't react differently or you know to we you want to work yourself out of a job is really what your what, what our goal is is to not to not need us if that makes sense so i think when the environment's healthy and if it's and i think it's easier to be healthy in a in a, a well i want to say smaller environment i i see what you're saying you're getting at the point of because i'm small i'm a small business and we don't have as much we can't do as much for our people as in a slightly bigger i think i think medium sized a little bit larger than what we are would be nice to have the support of one another, but the bigger companies, I don't have much of it. I I don't have a need for that. I mean, I think that they don't, they lose touch with the people. Whereas for somebody in my, I I think I have a medium-sized company. We have 50 employees. We have, we serve hundreds of people and, but we have limited resources. So we can't, so we can't do all the things that we would like to do for people, but we know everybody. And so we try to take care of everybody. And we're not going to do anything that's going to harm anybody because, because we know them and we know, you know, we, we want to take care of them, you know, so yeah, I yeah. don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah. You, I think it's so, a pretty good insight.
1: Yeah. In that sense, as you mentioned, you keep the human touch, right? And in that sense, you, as a business owner, uh, you, everyone can feel like they can approach you as a person, whereas the bigger corporations, you have bureaucracy, you have systems, you're basically interfacing with a system and not a person in, in most cases, which is why they need to bring in psychologists, therapists, support systems like that. And this brings me to more of the culture side to relate this to the subtitle of your book, Understanding How Our Culture Is Making Us Sick. I want to unpack that, those two parts, culture and the sick part, because Culture is shaped over time by one environment, as you said, education. There's a lot of forces that play into that and it's not something that changes overnight. And this goes back to the shift where the next generation is going. What are the facets that can, are important in shaping or shaping culture? And how can we make sure that, that sickness doesn't infiltrate like virus within culture.
0: I think you said it very well a little earlier, you were talking about about how our culture is created by us, right? We, it's, we our environment is how we think. It's, it's based on our belief systems, right? And, you know, historically, if you look at, you know, since the beginning of documented time, religion has kind of been a part of cultures. It, gave, it it. brought communities together. It provided meaning. And, you know, in today's day and age, it's very different because I think anytime groups of people gather, greed and corruption just seep in. It's just what happens. And so a lot of people have kind of moved away from that for, for, for lots of reasons. But I do think that, and I really believe very strongly in this, I think that it's important that we not lose sight of purpose in life and and what we have in common and and really just kind of finding that spiritual health whatever that means for you I mean spirituality can mean this belief system but it can also just mean you know it can be very vague as far as living certain values but I think that the key is really trying to understand one another our thinking our belief systems and trying to and and trying to understand what what we need, because if we are making decisions, based, not just we, we how humanity is connected. I guess I should put it that way. All religions, if you kind of look at the origins of them, they're at the root of them is love, interconnectedness, and personal responsibility. And if if we could try to kind of see what we have in common and try to work together that way, I think people are more apt to to come up with solutions and work together, whether they're big businesses or whoever they are, whatever their relationship is. I think that's what drives positive change. You know, why why do people do, why do you do what you do, right? You do it because you want to do something of value, something that's passionate, that you feel passionate about, but but why do you want to do something valuable? It makes you feel good, right? It makes you, It's it's part of who you are as a person, part of your, you know, it's what you want. You want the world to be, right? right
1: yeah and and uh, on the the purpose for like it, I, I'm not sure how common it still is, but it has been generalized like uh, you know, fresh out of college students or you know, the younger generation. there's the notion of, you know, they're still finding or not having that sense of purpose, like a a strong belief to anchor towards. And that kind of is something that's, I think, infiltrating all these mental health issues, depression, etc. Because there's no strong value or purpose connecting them. So as you said, religion was something in history that kind of anchored people to, I wouldn't say, higher purpose, but a strong belief system. So do you think that shifting towards the more materialistic question, societal framework that we have now kind of disrupted that value system?
0: It's, yes, absolutely it did. I, I, I mean, yeah, that's a whole other topic. But I, I do think that I, I think and this is something I think I mentioned in my book, but I don't know if I did or not. But I really think it would be helpful if in our schools and public school system is if we taught children from a young age about different belief systems, you know, from every religion to atheism to agnosticism to to and to appreciate all of their service, the, even the ris- the services and the positive things that they offer, but also the dangers and when things get corrupted or or, you know, how to live to, like if we could if we could teach kids from a young age to understand one another and i think that if they're exposed to it young i think now you know people have kind of moved away from it because for lo- for lots of reasons and without it you're right they're not anchored they don't feel i mean you're not you're not doing things for I think you're you're you I, I I feel that I am anchored because of my belief system. And I think that most people who have a strong belief system are anchored. And I think they're mentally healthier, at least. Well, I shouldn't say
2: that. No, no, it's uh, it's actually true. I'm actually going to fully support you on this because I think it's not necessarily, Diego, that you get more of a purpose when you're connected to a belief system, but it makes it easier to live. Like it's mm-hmm, not, right. I'm like, I, I had times in my life when I was not, I'm actually not bound to any religion. And I try to understand as many religions as possible. And what I have found, for instance, is the Bible, for instance, as much as there can be things that are, can be said about the Bible, it provides at least a way to structure life. Because where we get at mm-hmm. a certain point when all these influxes on information come, and basically, you tell people, like, you can decide wherever you want. You can decide your own morals and values. You can decide your own belief system. People just get lost because they don't know where to start. With having a belief system at least gives you, like, okay, for me, this is good and this is bad. Even if you don't agree with me, at least I have a structure for myself that keeps me sane and that makes sense for me. And I, I, what I really love, Maria, about, about your approach is that you say, like, let's, let's look at from... From an empathy perspective, let's try to understand everybody, and we can learn from every every everybody as well and then of course my 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 most difficult question becomes, we, for instance, recently had one of our guests recently on social Confos was somebody who makes books for children with special needs, which is amazing, like mm-hmm. it, it's it's realizing how many people there are that could benefit from that or were wrongfully diagnosed with something, but something as small as this kind of an aid can help them overcome or realize what's going on and why they're struggling. And then from the other side, and this often in the U.S. becomes a discussion between left and right. On the other side, you have very strong, strict principle beliefs. And then you get into situations where there's like things are being proposed by the left that you are Definitely unequal, but they're actually not. So and let's take a, a, a current case because I love soccer slash football and it's the World Cup. There were seven, I think seven European countries to which they wanted to support their one-love campaign saying like, hey, we believe in human rights. We believe in freedom of speech. We believe in equality. And their captains were going to wear the one laugh or armband as kind of showing those countries showing their support. In a country as Qatar, which is has a completely separate, different belief system than, than those Western European countries. So, and, and it even went this far that the FIFA said if you're gonna wear that armband, you're gonna get sanctioned. And the uh, German national team replying by when they made their team photo before a match putting your hand in front of your mouth, saying like, you're silencing us. You're not allowing free speech. In a World Cup, which is considered the event that brings people together. So basically, my question is from a positive perspective, what do you do when there are two belief systems that are complete opposite? Like our easiest, and that's what we're doing our generation, and that's what our generation is struggling with. We turn our head and look the other way. But in the end, it doesn't solve anything because basically life just goes on, and there are two extremes fighting against each other. So, what advice would you give us, saying like from a mental health perspective, because we can turn our head, but it still mentally impacts us. So, well, how can we, from a positive influx, kind of find a way to to get those two extremes closer together?
0: Well, I. I like I said before, I really think it has to start when the kids are little is help. I mean, I think the best thing to do is to expose your kids to all of the belief systems, you know, and people who who don't believe in it, who are who, who atheists, you know, there's, a, there's reasons people believe what they believe and help them to understand that the value in all of those belief systems. I will tell you that being my age, I'm around a lot of people who think who are a little more more conservative in their thinking. And so, which I am not. And I I think that the important thing is to continue to have the conversations. You have to have, people need to feel heard of why they believe what they believe. And you need to be able to say, you know, this is why, this is, you you have to be able to have those uncomfortable conversations, but you also have to be able to know when, that conversation needs to come to an end because not those whose conversations aren't for everything, you know, for everybody. When I was young, politics and religion, nobody talked about those. Social media came around and everybody puts their opinions out there to everybody because they don't have the same face to face. It's so strange to me. You know, I, I do think in, a, in, in my house, especially my husband's very conservative. My one of my daughters is very vocal and very liberal and they can kind of go at each other at times. And I always think I, I'm usually the mediator. And really what I find is that we learn from each other. Like my husband has good points and my daughter has good points. And we usually come to, I, I bro and I and I see things in the middle anyway, but I think that they do, they both become better people because they're willing to to, to listen to one another. But you really have to, those conversations aren't, f- aren't easy all the time. And, but I do think that they're important for us to talk to our children and to have the conversation. And it's important for, 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 for us t- to teach our children also to be open-minded and to, to understand that they're just because you think this way, it doesn't mean that it's true, you know, or just because I will tell you, I'm a very, I see, I automatically see things from a full perspective all the time, almost all the time. And I think when my kids were a little younger, when they lived at home, they saw things more like that because I presented things that way. When one of my daughters went off to college, I found her to come home to be very extreme in another way, um, to be very, her thinking became very extreme in one way. And I was kind of taken back by it, but it was the people she surrounded herself with The one thing I will say is now she's out in the world working and, you know, it's starting to shift again. It's really just about being willing to grow. Yeah. Being willing to talk, being models of what we want our children to be. If we want them to be open-minded and to be able to talk about hard stuff set in a sensitive way, then we need to be able to do it, but not overdo it because we also need to know when, all right, it's a party and we don't need to talk about, you know, (laughs) what, you know, most controversial thing going on in the world right now. So
1: yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. I have one final question to bring it full circle. We started off with a pen name and you just mentioned social media, especially the example with your daughter being more vocal liberal. And one thing that's a common thread now on social media is people, I won't say hiding, but using a pseudonym or not the real name on social media and being very vocal. Like, how do you see that, like, being, yeah, influencing the way culture is shaped through voicing your opinions, sometimes very strong opinions behind the name.
0: One, One thing that I've noticed is that people, a lot of people don't give it any credibility. They stop, they, you know, whenever. If you have a strong opinion you don't say who you are and you're really just hiding behind a screen you kind of you don't you haven't established the respect of of anybody caring about your opinion so I don't I think more and more people don't really give much attention to that and you'll and I think that just comes with a little maturity kind of see that that doesn't mean anything it does, those opinions really are kind of a they're not you you don't place much value on an opinion that somebody's hiding behind that's you know, like that, so. And that's what I was getting at, why I shouldn't have used a pending, because I undermine my own credibility, you know,
2: so. It's interesting that you mentioned this, because I started off with a Netflix series, and I was watching this Netflix series on social media, and one of the experiments they did was let an, an actual musician play a really out-of-tone song, and then they had two audiences listen to it and give a grade between one and ten. And to one group that was kind of on average saying like on average five. And the other group scored on average a two. Then they explained that the second group that on average people gave it a two was like they were going to be anonymous. Nobody was going to know who they were. The, the singer himself wasn't going to see them personally. So they really went at it hard. And then they actually brought that singer into into the, in the room afterwards. And they experienced some kind of guilt for grading her so low. <laughs> and this kind of ties into the social media situation. Whereas people are like very much, if they're anonymous, they, they feel they can say something much more rough than they would if they would know that person and then that also explains why people find those people less credible but yeah you can hide behind the screen so we don't know who you are so i think the power of anonymity uh, like danny puts it is 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 definitely something and we're gonna put some comments in as well because we're ending we're already at the one hour mark so it's good to put some comments in. Danny he said the power of anonymity And uh, Tanya says she's actually asking questions and not trying to force her own belief system on others. And I think that's also something which you mentioned with your daughter and your husband, like talking and learning from from each other as well. So for me to close it off, Maria, now that you've published the book, how much do you feel? Because I'm asking this because a friend of mine made a documentary and she thought she was dying. And then it ended up being another documentary and she thought she was done with a second documentary and it keeps on going. So how much of a personal satisfaction have you had that you have now published a book? this book and to what extent are you going to continue with not just your journal? Because I, I can assume you're still journaling, but you haven't stopped journaling and writing down your, your experiences, right? correct yes so what's the so what's the next step going to be is there going to be a follow up book to this one or are you just got to keep it at one for now
0: you know i haven't decided i mean i published the book because there's never a real there's never a good time like i, I was saying earlier that there's always going to be something so i just kind of put it out there the world was changing fast and i thought there really is value in understanding how we got here to begin with because then we can kind of take a look so I have I I go both ways. Am I happy with what we've done putting it out there? And is the next step just the marketing piece, which is not what I like doing or I'm comfortable with? So I'm trying to navigate some of that. That's that's what I'm working on right now. But I've actually on the other side of it, there's a part of me that that really just kind of wants to get connected with people again, because in my business, what we did was we built, I, I started off just wanting to help families who had disabled adult children. And it it evolved very differently than I had intended. And I, I'm more of an administrator. And like you said, when you're in business, there's just so much that falls to you. I, I would love to, to step back a little bit from some of the work that I'm doing now and kind of really kind of kind of just immerse myself in with parents and children with special needs again. So I may, I may, I may write another book because I will continue to write. I may focus on marketing or I may just kind of get back out there with kids again and, and people and making the connections and helping to rebuild my own community, you know, in a way that makes sense that I, that, that I think would be beneficial to my, to my neighbors, to my, the people in my, my community.
1: I think that's very well said and we look forward to actually, if that shapes up to be another book or another form of media, you sharing your observations, your experiences with others will definitely have an impact because that's how you start shaping culture, right? By sharing and having these conversations. So Maria... (laughs) We want to thank you. Oh, Shanluk is back. Thank you for sharing yeah, your your critical observations with us and having this, you know, fun, casual. I hope it wasn't too uh, too confronting, but we really enjoyed it. Shanluk.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate your time and, and being patient with me. And, and this was really very stress-free, I would say. So I appreciate it being my first time doing something like this. Awesome.
2: Maria, we're going to add some info into
0: the links on this video as well.
2: How people can reach out to you if people are interested to connect with you. And as always, we want to thank you for being our guest because without you, this episode wouldn't have been possible. So thank you for joining us, Maria. For the people watching, thank you so much for being a part of Social Confos. You know the drill. The audio version will be uploaded to all streaming platforms as well. And we, we will be back here with another Solution Converse next week. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks.